Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecovis store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovis.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. You're listening to the Wild Initiative Podcast Network. Learn more and check out all the shows at thewildinitiative.com. You're listening to the Fish Untamed podcast, where we talk all things fishing, conservation, and the outdoors. Today on the show, I'm joined by John Kelly Kaufman, who just got back from his first summer guiding in Alaska. All right, welcome to episode number four of the Fish Untamed podcast. Today on the show, I'm talking to John Kelly Kaufman. Uh, John Kelly and I used to guide together a handful of years ago, and he actually just got back from his first summer guiding up in Alaska. So this episode was recorded a couple months ago, right before he left for his trip. I think it was two days before he left. And so this is more of an expectations episode where we discuss uh, how he got the position and what his expectations are for the upcoming summer, uh, having never guided up there before. So um, we also get into his website, reflectionsonthefly.com, um, where he kind of mixes his passions for fly fishing and photography. So without further ado, here's my chat with John Kelly Kaufman. Hey, John Kelly, how's it going? Uh, it's going well, Katie. Uh, good to hear from you. I'm glad to be here. And how are you doing? I'm good. Uh, not a lot of fishing going on with runoff right now, but uh, have you been getting out at all? Yeah, so... You know, I since the start of the year, I started logging days for the first time ever, actually. And I've hit 60 days so far this year. Um, unfortunately, in the last month, I haven't logged as many as I was for the first um, couple months of the year. Um, but I was getting out real consistently early on and more responsibilities, school, stuff like that has been preventing me from getting on the water as much as I'd hope. But 
so are you already uh, out of school? Or are you still are you still in school for the year right now? So I'm done for uh, for the year, okay. and I'll return next fall. Okay. Yeah. Um. So are you just hanging out then until I guess we'll we'll get around to that. But um, before you head to Alaska, are you just kind of hanging out in the meantime? Uh, yeah. So I've got actually two more full days here in Dallas before I fly out Friday morning. So it's a pretty quick turnaround in Dallas. Um, and prior to that, I was just, I've been prepping for Alaska tying flies. So trying to hang out and get some, some downtime, some quality time with friends and family, but it seems like it's been a quick transition from finals and papers and, you know, final projects for school to preparing for this upcoming season. So for sure. So just to kind of preface what this whole conversation is going to be about, um, you're heading to Alaska for the summer pretty soon, it sounds like. And yeah. this is your this is going to be your first summer up there um, after a couple of years guiding elsewhere. So I guess the kind of the goal of this talk is to um, we'll talk about you, but also kind of get your expectations of what you're ex- what you're expecting to come from this first year guiding in Alaska. And then hopefully down the road, maybe do a follow up and, and see how you're. Uh, how reality, I guess, compared to your expectations, especially since it's, I'm sure it's going to be a lot different than, than what you've experienced before. Uh, sure. You've, you've got it for a couple of years yeah. now, it sounds like. Um, you and I worked together uh, for, I think, two summers, um, more or less. And then it sounds like you went off and got it in Crested Butte. So um, you want to tell me a little bit about that? Because I haven't, I haven't heard much about uh, your, your third summer guiding. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, so this past summer, I was in Crested Butte. And that was, that was really an awesome experience. It's, it's cool to, you know, get around different places, particularly in Colorado with fisheries that have so much to offer. And it was definitely a transition coming from the Estes Park area where we had worked. Um, Mm -hmm. Wasn't spending as much time on Alpine lakes, more uh, big water, like the Gunnison, um, as well as the Taylor river and the East river, you know, the three primary rivers in the Gunnison Valley. Um, so yeah, it was different as far as the fishing, but there was definitely one thing that stood out that was majorly different than the two years past in Estes Park. Um, so in Estes Park, as you know, we all live in one house. It was almost like a guide's lodge. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone that worked for Sasquatch under one roof. So this last year in Crested Butte, I actually was able to interview over the phone with a fly shop owner and I had the job, but the next step was to find housing. So looked everywhere, looked on, you know, Facebook groups for Crested Butte and Gunnison. Couldn't find anything within a reasonable price. Um, I mean, they're practically having a housing crisis there and having a hard time housing seasonal workers. But anyways, what I landed on was actually just deciding to buy a rooftop tent for my car. And so I lived out of my car for the entire summer. Oh, camped wow. every night. <laughs> so that was definitely a big change compared to living with the, I, I guess it was usually like 12 or 13 other guides Yeah. in the Sasquatch house. Pretty full, full rooms. Pretty full. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> so is that pretty standard for them to, like, they don't provide housing for you and you're just kind of on your own? Correct. Correct. A lot of the guides there, um, you know, they live there year round. So it was unique for me to be going up there for just a season. Um compared to the other guides. What are those guides doing year round? Are they guiding year round or is it that they're seasonal like you and then uh, do something else in the winter? 
Right. So that seems to be the big question for guides in general, right? <laughs> and for the guides that I was working with in Crested Butte, it, it definitely varied. For example, two of the guys in my shop were guiding in South America during uh, our winter, which is obviously summer in the South, Southern Hemisphere. And so they were guiding down in Patagonia. And another just, I mean, it's kind of ambiguous. It's kind of a, it's kind of a hard question to answer. Um, certainly it seems that things tend to get pretty, pretty thin financially for, for a lot of guys in the off season, but it was, it was kind of cool because I was actually in Crested Butte for a few weeks over the winter, which is, you know, the dead center of the off season, mm-hmm. but the shop was doing something new and that they were capitalizing on all the people coming up over winter break for skiing and whatnot. And we're actually offering ice fishing trips. So that was helping. Uh, Yeah, that was providing some income for a few of the guides in the off season. But it seems that it definitely varied from person to person. And I I know that, for example, like I I met up with one of our guides for five days to do some steelhead fishing up in Washington State on the Olympic Peninsula. And he has done that trip every other year. And he spends typically a month to a month and a half up there just camping and fishing. So now is that the trip you wrote about for the Trout Unlimited magazine? Correct. It was that one. Okay, cool. And have you, had you done that before? Had you gone up and steelhead fish or was that your first time up there? That was my first time. And I've got to say, I, it's been a dream of mine for going on five or six years, ever since I kind of um, started to explore a little bit like the culture and just like the, the pursuit of steelhead. It's, it's really unique specifically just because the, winter fishing you get the opportunity to fish two-handed rods and in really beautiful places and you spend a lot of time fishing and seems like compared to a lot of other species definitely compared to trout you spend a lot less time catching so (laughs) (laughs) so were you swinging flies like right so yeah i mentioned the two-handers but we didn't have um a set of two-handers between the two of us so we couldn't really spend a day swinging and we opted for fishing from the boat with nymph rigs. And so we were fishing egg patterns uh, under an indicator, which um, purists may cringe at and maybe one day I'll be one of them. But (laughs) within my means, um, that's what was available. And it certainly didn't take away from the experience for me, particularly on my first trip. Yeah. I think on any tough enough as it is. Right. For sure. Well, that's that's pretty cool. I I've gone steelhead fishing I think like once or twice, and I think I've landed one. But I think it'd be I think it'd be pretty cool to to spend a season like making that the, the primary species to target because it seems like it takes more than just like a trip or two to uh, kind of get into it or like claim that you um, really know anything at all about it. Uh, totally. So I think I think spending a whole season like chasing that that's that would be mm-hmm. kind of like the minimum intro you could have to it and and actually get into it. Big time, big time. And, and that's what I saw with my buddy, Mike, who, uh, who I met up with for that trip. You know, he spent a month to a month and a half there every other year for 10 years. And he really expressed the importance of doing that to him because it really mixes things up. It gives him an opportunity to really get excited about something different, um, to be in a new you know, setting. And you know, where we were was the only rainforest in the contiguous United States you know, coastal rivers, just like really contrast the, 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 uh, the setting and the waters that 
he fishes every year in Crested Butte. So he sees a lot of guides burn out in the Gunnison Valley, a lot of bad attitudes, but he, he seems to really cherish the, the time that he spends fishing for steelhead and seems to really prioritize that. I think that's a really smart way to go because I feel like even after a couple summers just guiding up in Colorado, you start to feel burnt out by by a couple months in, just kind of doing the same trips every day and seeing the same kinds of people every day. So I think that that's probably like a really great way to go about guiding is to to split it up into like a couple months in each place and like see different people, fish for different things, see different landscapes, just so you it constantly feels new, even though it's just fishing everywhere you go. Totally. I think that's one thing that seems to be daunting um, on the horizon as a someone that aspires to guide as a career, personally. But at the same time, the flexibility is really uh, attractive to me because it just it means that there's so many places to go and and fish to pursue, and uh, there's ways to do it. You know, mm-hmm. DIY, camping, spending very little, just bumming it and and really making memories of a lifetime. For sure. So going off of that, I know you'd mentioned before that, you know, you, you kind of keep guiding and you're also, you'll be getting your degree in sustainability studies, right? Correct. Yes. So are you planning on kind of combining those where you'd be guiding and doing something more with that? Or would it be like guide, guide straight through for a couple months and then do something else on the side related to that degree. Cause I know you want to do something with that as well. Uh, but it also sounds like you have no intention of, you know, quitting guiding anytime soon. Right. Right. Yeah. And that's a good question because there, uh, you know, it, it could be a distinction in the sense that like I have my guide mode and I'm like guiding, I'm on the water helping people catch fish and that I'm kind of limited to that. And then in the off season, I'm working with ecological restoration or, helping manage natural resources um, for government or non-governmental agency and kind of wearing two hats at different times of the year. But the way I would see it is that with the knowledge I have gained and that I will gain in my final year next year at UT, it it really seems that the dots are connecting. And I I feel that my, my path as a guide is very integrated to the responsibility I feel to steward and be a a voice for the stewardship of our natural resources so that when I'm guiding, I'm bringing people into this environment where they can experience firsthand the, uh, the utilitarian aspects of nature. Uh, what I mean by that is like, it's inherent that when you're in nature, you experience peace, you can have problems um, kind of fade away and it, it forms you into a person that is better than you were before that experience. And as we've seen in the history of conservation in America, it's been the organizations made up of hunters and fishers that have pushed for the stewardship of land and water resources and, and the like. And so circling back around, providing that experience for people is definitely on par and very connected to my role as a conservationist, just by getting people out there and expressing the need for people to stand up for uh, natural resources and stuff like that. Um, but yet at the same time in the off season, I do hope to be able to do more focused work really where the rubber meets the road and actually affect change, whether that's ecological restoration or doing policy work for conservation groups, stuff like that. So are you more interested in the kind of restoration side, like the boots on the ground science, you know, make sure 
fish populations are healthy or are you more interested in the kind of social aspect of like getting people into fly fishing who um, may come from circumstances that you know makes a high barrier to entry or Mm -hmm. people who just aren't aware of the opportunities out there or is it kind of a combination of both that drives you yeah i definitely think it's a combination of both and i certainly have an openness um and i guess i'd say that i have a preference that what i would do would encapsulate both perspectives on that but it's idealistic uh i uh, i'm definitely open to either and i'll look for opportunities to um to do both maybe different times of the year okay yeah so talking about alaska this summer because i feel like we've got quite a bit to unpack there start by telling me how you kind of came across this opportunity and then we'll kind of go into um where where you see it going after this point because i just i i feel like we all have that like one or two friends that have guided in alaska and i feel like they all have different stories having been up there it seems like it's such a just a wide variety of experiences so um i just kind of want to hear all about your your experience so far in terms of connecting with them and um, kind of what you've learned so far and then kind of what, where you see it going. Totally. Totally. Um, I'm glad you asked because it's already before my feet have even left the ground as they will in two days. It seems like it's already been a journey in, in a sense. So it kind of starts back 14 years ago, actually. I was there in Alaska on a tour with my extended family in order to celebrate my grandparents' 50th anniversary. And I was only nine years old at the time, and I only vaguely remember it. But even though I was 14 years ago, I've had a fascination with Alaska ever since. And I've heard stories secondhand about, oh, well, my, this guy or whoever is guiding in Alaska. And it's like, oh, that sounds awesome. That's, that's got to be one of the coolest jobs you could have. Like, and I've kind of heard stories of people going up there and guiding for lodges over the years. And even when we were at Sasquatch, we'd talk about like, oh yeah, some of the people that had started here at Sasquatch now guide in Alaska. And it it just kind of seemed like something that I should have on my list of goals. And so it's been there for a while. And um, after some conversations with friends and family earlier this year, I decided that, you know what, it might just be worth a shot to just go ahead and send my resume to some lodges up there. And so that's what I did and had some conversations with head guides, lodge owners, and got in touch with the owner of Intricate Bay Lodge in Southwest Alaska. The owner's name, Brian Harry. And we, uh, we had some great conversation and we had a over the phone interview and he gave me an offer. And I feel very fortunate and truly lucky because he could tell you the same thing as a guide that has only done wade trips for the last three seasons, I'll be stepping into a role where I'll be rowing uh, guests down river nine miles a day every day. And the only reason I've been able to get my foot in the door was because of that trip I took to Washington State. And when Brian asked me over the phone, what's your rowing experience? And I told him, well, I've been a wade guide the last three summers. It's never been in the budget to purchase a raft or much less a drift boat. And Nonetheless, when I was in Washington, I spent five days on the river with the head guide of my fly shop, 36 years old, his name's Mike. And I told Brian that this guy gets tagged by local shops in Southwest Colorado to train their guides how to row. And I told Brian, I said, you know, I spent four or five days rowing 
with him under his instruction and that I made major strides. And despite my lack of experience overall, he liked the sound of that. And I ensured him that I put in my every effort and I told him I'm a quick learner. And so it's uh, like I said, I feel very fortunate and lucky to to have this opportunity. You know, I feel like that's one of those things that yeah, it's it's kind of like the classic job problem where like you need experience to get a job, but you need a job to get experience. Right. <laughs> and I feel like rowing is one of those things that you can't really have experience until you've done it, but everyone mm-hmm. wants you to have done it before you do it. Totally. So it seems like you kind of lucked out, you know, having someone who uh, does train people to row and like does row, mm-hmm. you know, for a living, but you don't have to do it on the job. Like you get to just do it in your own time. The pressure's kind of off. You're just there learning. Um, so I feel like, you know, as much as you don't have as much experience as some people who've done it professionally for a while, uh, having having a little bit of experience under your belt and being eager to learn, it, it, at some point, someone's just got to take a, a leap of faith and, and let you row and to let you get good at it. Right, right. And I'm really thankful that Brian is is the one that's given me the grace to do that. Uh, it's It's really crazy just how uh, influential it seems like this five-day trip that I took to Washington State um, in pursuit of Steelhead has been so far and will be going into the future because the only reason I was able to go on that trip is because I actually forfeited the opportunity to pay dues for the fraternity that I've been a part of at the University of Texas for the last four years and worked it out with my dad to where I wouldn't pay dues, and instead I would get a portion of that money to put towards that trip to Washington State. And Sounds like a pretty good deal. (laughs) Yeah, and at the time it was just like, oh yeah, steelhead are awesome, that'll be worth it. And believe me, the fishing and the times that I was able to share with Mike were certainly worth it, but I had never dreamed that only by the fact that I went on that trip, got that time, that very little bit of rowing experience would be just enough to get my foot in the door in Alaska for my first season. So as far as you know, how how will Alaska compare to um, Colorado or the nor- the Pacific Northwest in terms of like the fishing style, like what you'll be targeting, um, just kind of the style of how an outfitter's run up there versus what you've encountered down here in the lower 48? You know, I just have to start out and say that the idea that surrounds, you know, Alaska And this upcoming season for me is primarily one that just, I have this, I have this thought. It's just like, I have no idea what I'm getting myself in for in a lot of senses. Uh, A lot is unknown. I have never lived at a fly fishing lodge. I've never guided for a fly fishing lodge. Um, So I've got a lot to learn, but that doesn't mean I can't answer any of those questions. So I do know that we get all five species of Pacific salmon uh, up there. We get large rainbow trout, grayling, Dolly Varden. There's northern pike in the lakes. And so it's very diverse opportunities. And I think one of the primary differences as far as the fishery goes is just the presence of millions of tons of salmon coming out of the ocean and through the freshwater systems. So just like overwhelming compared to what's going on down here. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the magnitude of, I mean, it's a fact. It is the largest transfer of nutrients from one habitat to another in the world. The sockeye salmon run in Southwest Alaska through Bristol Bay is the largest transfer of nutrients from one habitat to another. And that is just a magnitude that my words cannot describe. 
much you less on the can't front end. It. Oh yeah, I know. I, I I really can't. I mean, um, it's a gift and a curse that we have a video. You know, in our world, we have opportunities mm. to <laughs> see places before we go there. And so I've seen some videos. Um, I've seen the drone shots of a raft, um, you know, parting what looks like a, a sea of salmon. <laughs> and it, it truly is mind blowing. But but being there and seeing that day in and day out, once those salmon are in the system, it's, it's going to be unlike anything else. And uh, back to the fishing, it really influences the trout fishing. So they'll start keying in on the eggs that the salmon are bringing up. And then towards the latter end of the season, after the salmon have spawned, they're keying in on the flesh of the dead salmon that's drifting downstream. But then also beyond the the fact that the, uh, the adult salmon's presence is a big influence on the, on the trout. It's also the, the salmon fry and the salmon smolt that are left over from the last year. Uh, so they're eating the juvenile salmon and based on conversations I've had with my boss, you can step into an eddy and millions of salmon fry will swim out into the river, into the main current. And they're so small, they can hardly swim on their own, uh, much less in the fast current and the, the rainbow trout just go crazy on them. And there's so many of them that it's hard to effectively imitate them <laughs> in a way that would cause us a rainbow trout to choose your fly over one of the million that's in the river. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was going to ask. So kind of on the trout end, as well as the salmon end, are the salmon feeding or are you uh, like snagging them or using some other technique to catch them? Right. So I, uh, as far as I know, we won't be snagging them. And now I've got to say, I've never actually caught a salmon before, uh, which is crazy, crazy to think that I'll be in the center of the largest salmon run in the world, having never caught one before. I'm sure so, you'll rack a few up pretty quickly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it seems it'll go that way. But my understanding as an anadromous fish, just like steelhead, that when they enter the fresh water, they're not actually feeding, but their territorial instincts, like their hormones, just have them like all riled up and angry so that when something gets in their face, they go up and smack it. Okay. So I know that we won't be snagging them, but they're not necessarily feeding, but it's, it's just such a weird thing, huh? <laughs> and then, and then what about the trout? Cause you said, I like, you made a good point. It, like, how do you differentiate your fly from the other million actual fish that look like your fly? So uh, I assume you're definitely catching the trout feeding, but how are you, how are you separating yourself? Right. So how am I going to target the trout um, with like a fry pattern? That's a, yeah, that's a, that's a big question. And honestly, that's a kind of a universal challenge when you're, you're fishing the fry and I can only go off conversations I've had with my boss over the phone. For sure. Yeah. I understand. Um, but he said that, you know, the guys will have guests on the boat and they'll see all those fry kind of flowing down the river in a big ball of bait. And they see all these rainbows just like swarming them. And they're like, Oh, we should probably put on a fry. And, guy to accommodate them and say, all right, yeah, we'll tie one on. And they don't catch anything for 15 minutes or however long. <laughs> and the guy's like, yeah, it's probably time to go back to a leech, huh? <laughs> and so the guests will just put a leech fly back on and they'll start catching them again. And so there's certainly a way to imitate the fry effectively. Um, but I think oftentimes, I mean, my hunch is that 
it's got to be presentation, uh, okay. even more than just pattern, but definitely in combination because you've got to hit the size and the the pattern. And uh, I've read a little bit about imitating them, and it's really important to imitate like the barred sides on these salmon fry. Uh, just a arbitrary detail, but you know I've got a lot more to learn up there. <laughs> But it sounds like you're also maybe using patterns that aren't fry, like trying to kind of stand out from that group. Oh, yeah, totally. And I mean, there's such a diversity of food sources within these systems that uh, even when those fry are in the river, the you know, particular trout may key in on them, but they're also going to eat a leech opportunistically. And the local rivers that we have uh, within range of Intricate Bay Lodge actually hosts some of the best dry fly action for rainbow trout in all of Alaska. Yeah. And I've talked to a friend that got in Alaska last year, Mike Edwards. Do you know him? Yeah. 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 You know, Mike. (laughs) And he was, he was a little surprised that I was tying up like size four, six and eight stimulators. And I was telling him, yeah, well, we actually have like a, apparently a massive stone fly hatch that goes off in June uh, on the Copper River. That's going to be pretty exciting. Yeah, Just using sure. like massive dry flies, especially yeah. in a place that you don't really associate with dry flies. Like that's always a nice treat when you go somewhere and you're like, oh, wait, I can actually just throw something on the surface here. <laughs> yeah, it's always a nice treat. That's a great way to put it. And another treat is that I've found out recently that the rainbows up there like to eat a, a mouse swim across the surface, which I've thrown mice here and there, but I've never been in a place where it's like, seems like the go-to. seems like it could really crush. So I'm excited for that. So is that different? Do you know, maybe you don't know. um, And I understand that like a lot of this, you'll probably, you know, come back saying like, I had no idea what was, what to expect. Um, But like when I picture mousing down here, it's generally um, like, summertime uh night fishing in a meadow where there might be like a mouse swimming across randomly and you might get like a brown coming out from the undercut bank and snatching it up but um i feel like i've seen uh maybe in alaska maybe in russia uh where like mousing is just like kind of the standard all day every day like Uh during the day as well and for rainbows and i don't i don't feel like i picture mousing during the day or for rainbows much like down here it's it's kind of like a strictly nighttime activity is that Totally. Is that your understanding as well, that it's yeah. like a daytime thing there? Yeah. And, you know, the one thing to note is that if you're going to do it in the summer in Alaska or in the summer in Russia, unless you're doing it during the two hours of nighttime, it will be a daytime thing, which is oh, true. such an interesting <laughs> factor. So that's got to play into it in some way because the mice aren't just going to be active for two hours of the day. Mm-hmm. They might be running around, you know, while the light's out a lot more often than they would in say Colorado, where they can take advantage of the cloak of darkness day in and day out. So I didn't even think about that, that like you won't have much nighttime up there, will you? No. Yeah. And that's definitely one thing that I do remember very well from being there 14 years ago was being in just seems like it was, you know, it's obviously not brightest day because the sun stays pretty close to the horizon uh, towards the quote unquote night hours. But you know, it's just bright up there. <laughs> it's crazy. So do you know how that affects like like your hours or, or, you know, how a standard trip goes compared to like your standard guided trip down here where you've got 
you know, regular summer hours from, I don't know, like six to eight? That's that's a really good question. I do know that as a guide at this lodge, I'm going to eat breakfast at 6 a.m. and right after breakfast, start preparing for the day's trip, which will include packing gear into float planes. I mean, everything else that goes along with it, getting my gear as well as the guests in order. And then the guests will eat breakfast at 7 a.m. We'll fly out to a local river, float down the river, and then get picked up in the evening and be back at the lodge for dinner. And so it's just, it's interesting to even say that we'll be going back in the evening because it'll essentially be as bright as it was at midday. Just evening time. (laughs) Yeah, evening time. One thing that it, it does give me a little optimism that I might be able to squeeze in some more fishing time as a full-time guide this summer. If uh, so many of my hours are being taken up by trips, hopefully I can sneak out at, during quote-unquote night and still be That's able to get some, get some solid action. But who knows how much energy I'll have for that. I mean, kind of circles back to what I said earlier is that I truly have no idea what I'm getting myself in for in, in the best way, though. Yeah, I think that's the way to do it. I, th- I think that'll probably set you up for like a lot of pleasant surprises and probably some unpleasant surprises, but those ones will make good stories. And then the, pre- the pleasant surprises will just be, you know, great while it's happening as well. Totally. But yeah, I mean, I'm excited to hear how how it your expectations differ from reality. Like if when do you get back from Alaska? Like when when does the season go till? Yeah, so the season goes till October 1st. But since okay. I've got one more year, finish up my degree at UT. I'm going to have to cut out a little bit early, okay. but that'll mean that I'm going to hop on a flight August 29th and then get back to Dallas the morning of the 30th. And it's interesting because school actually starts at UT on August 28th. So I'm going to miss the first few days, but we just have some pretty busy stuff finishing up the month of August at the lodge. And so I was happy to stick around for a little bit longer and it won't be any irreparable damage that'll take place just by missing a few days at the start of the semester. Just syllabus day. Just syllabus week. That's right. <laughs> but yeah, I'm excited to hear how that goes. I I always love hearing after after people's first season somewhere. I feel like it's just a lot of things you don't expect to hear. Um, sure. probably a lot of like just good stories along mm-hmm. the way. When you were there for you said 14 years ago? Right. So you weren't fly fishing then, right? Cuz um you said you've been fly fishing for like seven years. Right. Yeah. It's funny that you ask. <laughs> yeah. So I want to hear how you got into fly fishing and also like what you were doing in Alaska before when you were, when you were just up there. Yeah, totally. So starting with when I was in Alaska 14 years ago, we were like on a tour bus, just going around all different places and seeing all, all kinds of stuff. Like we visited a, a Diderod Husky training and breeding kennel, got to fly over Mount McKinley in a bush plane, just got to see a bunch of random stuff. We did spend one day on the Kenai River floating down and uh, trying to catch rainbow trout. At the time, I was not interested in fishing. <laughs> I kind of kicked myself. Like at all? Like at all. Like I wasn't having a good time. <laughs> and we weren't we weren't fly fishing, which thank, thank God uh, that our guy <laughs> didn't have to deal with me, the fly rod in my hand at that age. Uh just speaking for myself, I know there's a lot of nine-year-olds that I would love to guide, but speaking for myself, <laughs> that was Probably definitely good for him. Probably a lot more than you don't. <laughs> yeah, sure. Absolutely. So yeah, there wasn't really much of a fishing aspect at the time for me, but my uh, my joy, my passion for fly fishing uh, would definitely come later. And it came seven years later, seven years after that trip. So I was 
16 and I'd spent at this point, I was a sophomore in high school and I'd spent the last three or four years gradually getting more into fishing in general. I started with bow fishing, interestingly enough. Um, I like to say that I progressed from the most carnal to uh, the most pure <laughs> of forms of fishing. I started with bow fishing. Was that because you were a hunter or did that, was that just a separate interest? Oh, that's such a funny question. You know, before I answer that, I'll have to say that the bow, the bow fishing would take place within the city limits. Okay. Um, I would find little creeks running through Dallas that had carp in them. And that's where I do my bow fishing. And there's a parallel there because you asked if I was a hunter. Now I'm 23 years old and I live in Texas and I've never shot a deer which if you ask a lot of people, that means I'm not a hunter. I have never really, I've never really had the opportunities to hunt like I have to fish. Uh, but growing up, I mean, I, my friends and I at a young age, we started you know, running through the alleys with blow guns and pellet guns and doing stuff that you know neighborhood kids did back then. I, I don't know if that goes on around as much now, but we would, run around and shoot doves and squirrels in the alleys of Dallas. <laughs> and so that was kind of my exposure to hunting. But the same same kind of brand of, of hunting would take place on those creeks where I would just try to shoot those carp <laughs> with a mm-hmm. bow and arrow. But then it progressed to conventional bass fishing, like bait casters, soft plastic, stuff like that. And then... I must have been in eighth grade or maybe a freshman in high school. I saw that uh, that one movie, A River Runs Through It. And I was just thinking to myself and I watched it with my family and I told them, I was like, well, one day I'm going to try that. I'm pretty sure I'm going to love it. And my opportunity came two years later at a summer camp in Southwest Colorado where I was for a month. And this particular summer camp, it's not around anymore. It was called Camp Kivu it had a trout stream running right through it, the Los Pinos River. And so for a month, I got to do that every day. And uh, long story short, I came home and I bought my first fly rod and I haven't touched conventional tackle much since. I feel like that's kind of the story with a lot of people. Like I grew Mm -hmm. up the same way, um, bass fishing and stuff. And I I actually kind of want to get back to fishing for like bass and other warm water species Mm -hmm. because I'm kind of like burnt out on trout. Mm-hmm. But I don't have any desire to go back to the to the spin gear for it. I just want to like chase them on the fly. Totally, totally. But I feel like that's that's how a lot of people like. I don't know a lot of people who have started fly fishing and then like progressed the other direction. Totally, yeah. It's like once you do it on the fly, you'll 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 endure fewer fish, maybe not as big a fish consistently for the challenge for sure. It's just it's just fun. Like it's just busy. Oh, that's right. Yeah. I mean, there's so many so many positives, and uh, I think. I've stuck with it and kept a fly rod in hand. Uh, I think for, it's probably not a unique reason, but it's a very uh, meaningful reason for me is that the period of my life where I did pick up a fly rod for the first time, I was, I was going through some pretty, pretty intense personal challenges, um, family challenges. My parents were going through a divorce and I spent that month up in Colorado, that summer camp. And the time that I could spend fly fishing was definitely a source of relaxation and rest and yeah I, I think it really it's it's almost like a, a fly rod is almost a token of a period in my life where I was able to escape a path of like uh, 
kind of a junction in my life where I picked up a fly rod and did a lot more fishing than uh, the alternate, which uh, mm-hmm. I guess statistics would say could have been like pretty, uh, pretty intense, devastating substance abuse or something like that. And I think uh, that's, that's where you hear the slogan, fly fishing saves lives. And I feel that that's part of the importance of it for me. Definitely. I feel like a, I've heard similar stories before where, you know, if, if someone hadn't kind of picked up something that took all their attention, mm-hmm. um, like fly fishing seems to, then they, they didn't really know where else they would have gone with their life. Mm-hmm. But I feel like once you dive in, it's, I mean, there's so much to learn. And then all the different versions of fly fishing, if you want to take up um, like Euro nymphing or spay casting or mm-hmm. fly tying yeah. or any yeah. of those things, yeah. it's just like, there's, you can never run out of things to learn. So it's just, it just kind of consumes your entire, your mindset. Um, so I think it's, I think it, fly fishing has probably pulled quite a few people out of um, bad situations and gotten them back on the right track. Uh, yeah. Even if that right track doesn't have anything to do with fly fishing, just having that kind of getaway. Yeah, absolutely. And I would absolutely echo exactly what you just said. It's the, it's the diversity uh, of experiences and techniques and, and fish and destinations that keeps it so interesting. And it's, it's like a, it feels like an infinite journey that even if you had all the resources in the world, you could never see, you know, the ends, the ends of the earth and fly fish all the waters. So, so kind of coming up to today then, um, so you and I, you and I knew each other, um, through guiding obviously, but what kind of hooked us up for this particular conversation was your website. Um, is that reflections on the fly.com? That's it. Yeah. Okay. So I, I kind of want to hear, um, considering like what you've been through and what your goals are going forward, um, kind of like what, what is your goal for this website and like, where do you plan on taking it? I know that you want to talk about some things in regards to kind of like what, what role fly fishing plays in, in today's society, especially considering the depth of the activity in comparison to um, the, the shallowness of today's kind of online world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and kind of balancing that with, you know, wanting to connect people, but being stuck in an online environment to do that. So I just want to hear kind of all your thoughts on all of that. Yeah. Just, you can take and run with it wherever you want. Yeah. Sheesh. Um, yeah. Just going off of what you said, like the contrast between the depths of the experience in fly fishing and the shallowness of the online world. It's, it's funny because those are, those are two completely different worlds. Um, Fly fishing for a very long time has been an excuse to get outside, uh, be in the sun, uh, be in beautiful places and pursue beautiful fish. And that's a separate world in its own in a lot of ways. And that is very pure, I believe. And there's no doubt that, I mean, you could even you could hear the same comments from people who aren't even really involved in the fly fishing industry that just like, wow, like you're really interesting that there's so much fly fishing content, you know, on, on social media. So commentary aside, it's definitely a fact that those two worlds are colliding and good or bad it's happening. And it's a very interesting thing because when something like that happens, when two completely different worlds collide, fly fishing in the online world, it's going to be interesting to see what happens um, to the culture of fly fishing 
And it'd be interesting to even comment today on how that might have changed for better or for worse, because it's definitely been for better in a lot of ways and could potentially be for worse in, uh, in other ways. I agree. I feel like you can kind of see both of those. I mean, you could you could make the argument that um, it's opened up the opportunity to start fly fishing for a lot of people, um, mm-hmm. especially with online tutorials and things. It's just, I mean, it's oh, yeah. it's not the easiest hobby to pick up. Um, mm. But I feel like with, with today's online world, especially with things like YouTube, um, anyone can grab a fly rod and be casting proficiently within a couple hours. Um, and at the same time, you've got kind of the, the egotistical um, comparative world of mm. who can catch the biggest fish and I mean, potentially doing um, shady activities to get said fish and mm-hmm. um, having having popular locations blown up. So it, it's definitely, it's got pros and cons, but I agree. It's just kind of figuring out how that balance is going to actually play out. Yeah. And that's exactly right. You know, I don't have like a super strong stance, like for or against it. I've accepted that it's happening now my responsibility is to just walk that line um, and try to understand that there's opportunities for good with it. Like I'm definitely indebted to people who have posted things online. I've learned a lot through it and uh, I've been inspired through it as well, um, regardless of the platform. And it's, it's definitely a developing conversation. It's hard to, to take a definite stance on it now. Um, but I would say that my efforts in making this website, um, definitely the big part of that is in order to present the sport of fly fishing in in a way that feels right to me personally. And that doesn't mean that it's more right than the way other people want to do it. But I I think that it's almost like a, exercise for myself as much as it may be for other people to enjoy it is just that I, I want to have a space where like the the love for this sport can be like reflected <laughs> no I think that's awesome doing it the way that you think it should be done and you can be in control of that right I just don't think that we can expect to really understand like the uh the meaningfulness of fly fishing just by swiping our our thumb across the screen. And I think that's a pretty idealistic goal for me is that people would consume content that doesn't involve swiping a thumb across the screen. Uh, Obviously my own website has a mobile version, but I just think there is an importance in, in going backwards in time and seeing history and not just seeing what was posted yesterday, but maybe like the books that were written, you know, decades ago, the classics and, and growing through that because there's just, it would just be a shame if the legacy of the sport were lost in in a flashy digital age. I agree a hundred percent. I, and I, it's also hard considering the fact that the majority of what you see on I mean I think we're we're mostly talking about Instagram here um, yeah <laughs> if we're talking about like lots of swiping and it's it, the problem is that despite the fact that most of the people on there probably do have um, a deeper connection to fly fishing it's hard for that to come through 
when you've got a picture and then a caption that shows a couple lines and then gets cut off. And the majority of those pictures are going to be um, a fish that someone caught, which, you know, of course, if you catch a fish, you're you're excited and you want to take a picture. But it's hard to then convey how much it meant to you and all the preparation that went into it and things like that, um, especially in a way that's going to matter to a stranger who is just looking for um, a couple minutes of looking at big fish in the meantime, Uh you know. Right. So, so are you planning on approaching that with writing or photography or kind of a combination of both? And um, yeah, what's your what's your goal and how do you plan to kind of achieve that? I guess on your site. Yeah. So with my website, it will definitely involve writing and photography as it already does. And I've been using thirty five millimeter film, and I, I enjoy that because, like I said earlier, like I think there's an importance in going back in time and understanding like the rich heritage of our sport. And I think that doing that with photography has helped me appreciate photography more. Uh, The process of shooting with film means that you take a photo and you, you don't look at a a screen on the back of your camera and see the way it turned out. You've got to wait for it to get developed and sent to you. And it's not to say that there's anything wrong with um, digital photography. No, I, that sounds pretty cool. Kind of combining I don't want to say ancient, but the kind of the the old heritage of of both of those things and using them to connect with each other. Would would you say that using the the film kind of gets you to slow down a little bit? Because that's one thing I've noticed as someone else who um, runs a site. I want to get like a good amount of photos when I go out, mm-hmm. so I can use them. Um, but I sometimes find that I I don't like how much I'm like focusing on trying to get as many photos as possible versus kind of slowing down and um, appreciating each one. And I know since you can't, since you can't look at the photo and, you know, delete mm-hmm. it and retake it, you probably need to kind of slow down and make sure you get it right the first time, which I'm sure once you're kind of in that mindset, you're probably a little bit more slowed down throughout the rest of the day as well. Is that, is that yes, a good assumption? Absolutely. It's a, uh, it's like a pace setter for the experience and it's definitely like a, an item that gets brought along on trips that really brings a nostalgic sense to the, to the fly fishing experience, which I think that's part of the importance of, and, and really the blessing that starting to shoot on film has been for me is that in using it, I'm experiencing photography in a, in a way that uh, is considered very often as, you know, the original art form of photography using film and that, a lot of people think that things have been lost in the age of digital photography. Um, that's not to say that it's like bad or something, but I really harp on the positives of film rather than juxtapose it to any negatives of uh, mm. digital photography. But all that aside, I, I think it it does absolutely help me embrace just uh, the nostalgia of fly fishing and that there are people who've come before me and that, I'm not the hero of this world, uh, this fly fishing industry or, or, or something grandiose. It's, it's humbling. And I think that's important. So were you into, um, I, I don't know if the word's traditional, but mm-hmm. um, kind of like classic photography before um, fly fishing, or was that something that you decided you wanted to do uh, kind of as a, as a partner with fly fishing? Dang. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting. I think I've kind of had a knack for it. I haven't really had much, uh, 
no pun intended, exposure to photography <laughs> before being into fly fishing. But I, I wouldn't say that had I never been into fly fishing that I wouldn't pick up photography. I think that they're reflective of different parts of who I am as a person. Um, I like to create, I appreciate nature and that is related to fly fishing, but it didn't stem from fly fishing necessarily. Um, All right. So you're working on this website with the goal of kind of getting, getting people in touch with the the past and the basically the meaning of why they're doing what they're doing um, specifically fly fishing. But it also sounds like you could be, kind of inspiring some people to maybe do some outdoor photography or other, just kind of getting back to the roots of like what they're doing um, and in particular fly fishing. So if you just want to share with people um, like where they can find you, uh, kind of what you have going on on your website and where you plan to take it. Yeah, sure. So the reflections on the fly.com website um, and the title, I think it kind of summarizes the men, the, uh, the purpose in a lot of ways, because when I think about like a reflection, it's just like taking what's in a moment and like extracting meaning from it. Um, and that's just, it's kind of like a state of mind that I, that when I tend to, you know, look for the deeper meaning in my experiences, I, I enjoy fishing more. I enjoy time with others more when I can relate it to the the human experience as a whole or the wider picture of life itself. I think it, it really helps me enjoy it more. And so the stories and the photos that I'll be posting on that website definitely aim to achieve that goal just by taking adventures and setting them in the context of, of life and, and life's challenges. And I'm, I'm really excited about that. And I, you know, I, I hope to achieve uh, achieve that with my website. I'd certainly know that it will evolve. Uh, I'm I'm more just excited that it's begun, <laughs> and that in That's different stages. Part. Yeah, exactly. And since I have it, I'm just excited that it'll be a place that wherever life takes me. And I feel like that's such a theme of our conversation is that you know, guided three summers. I've got my first season in Alaska coming up. I don't know what awaits for me there. Don't know what awaits me after I graduate, I don't know what each month of the year is going to look like for John Kelly going forward, but I'm excited that I'll have the opportunity to hopefully inspire people. And in this day and age, regardless of the industry, people can get by being really good at what they do, but being a jerk. And I've had to confront that reality in myself. And I've had to realize the importance of formation um, today, just personal formation, becoming a a, a better person. And I don't say that because I think I'm some altruistic saint. I have a lot of flaws. And because of that, I recognize the importance of transformative experiences, like getting out in the back country and being away from, you know, technology and all that. And I know that you cherish that a lot too. And so I hope that this website is a catalyst for my own formation and growth and that as people get to hear about and see my experiences that, that they'll be able to, to grow as well. And then beyond that, I don't know where it'll take me, but I think that that's 
kind of been a primary purpose within all of it is just to to grow and and love for other people well i think that's definitely the the best way to go about it and i'm i'm looking forward to seeing where you take it i'll uh i'll keep checking in on it every couple weeks and hopefully hopefully some other people will follow along too because uh i feel like you've you've got some good things coming up in store for you so i'm excited to see where it takes you i appreciate it All right, that'll do it for episode number four. As always, if you liked what you heard, go ahead and go over to the Wild Initiative podcast. You can find my episodes there every Thursday, and if you subscribe, you'll get all of those, plus all of Sam's other shows throughout the week. Uh, You can also find my episodes over on fishuntamed.com, in addition to weekly backcountry fly fishing articles each Sunday. You can find me on Instagram at fishuntamed, or on Go Wild under my name, Katie Burgert. And until next time, take care.